could not have been more excited for my speeding ticket. You have never seen someone be like, officer, you need my license, my registration, my insurance, here you go, run that shit, it's all good today. <laughs> I am not worried about a damn thing. But there was a time when those blue lights behind me caused me so much stress. What's going on? Welcome to Raw Storytelling, a podcast where real people share real stories, unscripted and uncensored. I'm your host, Enid Nolasco, and I'm so excited to have another episode out and have these stories that were recorded um, during our live shows in South Florida now be part of the universe. I'm so excited. So in case you don't know how this came to be, we were a live show uh, that occurred every month in South Florida and where we had maybe like five, four to five storytellers come up every night and share a true story of their life. And since 2020, we've solely been doing the podcast and we are accepting pitches from around the world. So if you want to share a, a story yourself, you can go to rawstorytelling.org and sign up to share your story. While you're on the site, you can also find storytelling tips featured stories and cool swag like t-shirts and stickers and our poetry book grammatical siblings and uh, yeah if you're there and you buy some swag you can help us keep us going since we aren't doing live shows and if you want to donate a dollar you can go there and uh, click the donate button and if you can't donate that's totally okay just support us by liking us on facebook or instagram at raw storytelling uh, or reviewing our podcast on apple Podcasts, or simply telling a friend we love you and we are so grateful that you listen to us every month. Thank you. We're also known for our two raw to share. These are anonymous secrets that our audience members and fans fill out and, and we share the really juicy ones on our social media or here on the podcast. As an example, I'm going to share a, a two raw to share from a couple years back that says, I held my grandpa still so my grandma could shave his eggs. Oh my. That's a little bit too TMI, which is a perfect amount of TMI for us. So if you have a, a two raw to share, a secret, you can go to rawstorytelling.org slash two raw, that's T-O-O-R-A-W, or call our hotline 786-361-6112 and share your secret. Before we get on with the show, the story theme this month is recovery. And I want to give two disclaimers. One is that the stories told today contain sensitive subjects that are important to talk about, yet sensitive nonetheless, like suicide, drug and alcohol use, violence. And although I would never censor our storytellers, I did want to issue that trigger warning. So listen with care. My second disclaimer is that some of the stories on today's podcast were recorded at the Art of Recovery Film Festival, which is not our usual setup, so therefore the audio is a bit rough, but the stories are so worth it. Okay, on with the show. And her uh, her story is titled "I Just Like to Drink and Fuck Shit Up." That's right, right? That's right. <laughs> and Brandis is a marketing master turned mindful maven on a mission to create more love, compassion, and positivity in the world, one person and one organization at a time. 
And uh, through, her, through her unique brand of mindfulness with a twist, she's a little hippie and a little hood, but 100% love. Right. And thank you for that wonderful introduction. I am 100% love, which was not always the case. I was more 100% rage uh, was the name of the game. But I want to tell you all, I got pulled over for speeding last week. Four days before my birthday. And I'm like, dude, that's just rude. <laughs> My brother was like, how did you get pulled over for speeding? You drive like a 90-year-old. And I'm like, I don't know. I was doing 42 and a 30. Leave me alone. Could not have been more excited for my speeding ticket. You have never seen someone be like, officer, you need my license, my registration, my insurance. Here you go. Run that shit. It's all good today. <laughs> I am not worried about a damn thing. But there was a time... When those blue lights behind me caused me so much stress. Maybe some of you can relate. Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> Let me take you back to the summer of 2002. When I was talking to Enid about the story, she's like, dude, that was like 17 years ago. I'm like, damn, I feel old. 2002, one month before my 21st birthday. I am on my way to a wedding. And I'm like, there's drinking at weddings. Sign me up. <laughs> so I'm driving, and my mother calls and says, Brandis, I got a bad feeling about this. I think you should turn around and go home. Mom, it's a wedding. Like, what terrible thing could possibly happen at a wedding? <laughs> You don't know the people. I just, I got a bad feeling. You know me and my bad feelings. I'm like, yeah, you and your bad feelings. Okay. I'm like, it's going to be fine. Now, mind you, I had left my purse at home. She might have been correct. I maybe should have listened to my mom. But whoever listens to their mom. So I get to the wedding. Correct that. I don't actually make it to the wedding because I'm late. So I go straight to the reception, which is all I really wanted to do anyway, because I don't know these people getting married. And I head to the wedding. And I would love to tell you all more about this wonderful reception that I was a part of, but I don't know anything really. I remember drinking wine out of a solo cup because it was super classy like that. Uh, I remember drinking a lot. And then it gets like a little fuzzy. Yeah. I come to talking to a Palm Beach County Sheriff's officer. I come to talking to him. As I come to and he is talking to me, I notice my shoes are on the passenger side of the car. And I'm like, how did I get here? I can't tell you what we were talking about. It was a pleasant conversation with this sheriff's deputy. Right up until they said, ma'am, we're going to need you to step out of the car. Oh, hell no. I'm not doing that. And I go to start the car. There's one small problem. They have taken the keys out of the ignition. 
I can't put the window up, I can't start the car, I can't drive off, I can't do shit. This becomes a situation in which they go to drag me out of the car. Has anybody else in this audience had that experience of being dragged out of a car? I'm all alone here? Oh, okay, there's some head nodding because nobody wants to be like me. Okay, I'm like, thank y'all. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So they go, they pull me out of the car. It is a struggle and a half. And mind you, all see me. I'm like five foot three, maybe like 99 pounds, maybe about 10, something like that. It takes three, three Palm Beach County Sheriff officers to calm me down, to get me on the hood of that car, and to actually get me in handcuffs. I am kicking, I am screaming, I am not going down without a fight. That didn't work out very well. So mind you, I roll up, roll up to uh, the jail, lovingly call, I call it Hotel Gun Club. I mean, why not make a pleasant experience out of it? It's not the Ritz or anything, but you know, it'll do. And I am just beside myself. I don't have my ID, right? I have nothing. So they put me in the, the little room there where they're going to take all of my information. They take my personal belongings and all that sort of stuff. And now would be a really good time to tell you all that I happen to be wearing a halter dress. I look cute. And as they leave the room to go do I don't know what, panic sets in. And I get a really smart idea. I untie my halter dress and decide that I'm going to like choke myself out with this halter dress. Like I'm going to commit suicide in this like holding cell situation. Not a great idea when you are in the custody of the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Department. Because when you go to kill yourself, it causes a swarm of them to come in and get you. They're like, not on my watch, girl. Not on my watch. Here's what else happened. They decide that you are a danger to yourself. They also don't want that responsibility. So they strip you of everything. Right down to your undies. And they give you a paper gown. And they put you on the mental ward with your paper gown in a holding cell all by yourself. Or I, it's not even a holding cell, it's just a cell, right? Yeah. So there I am <laughs> in my paper gown. It's cold in there. If y'all have ever like made that trip, it's fucking frigid and you're naked with a paper gown. And here is what my little alcoholic brain says. Girl, you so smart. You ended up with a private cell. Look at you. You are not with those people in the holding cell because you're up here in a private cell by yourself. Mind you, I'm not in the mental ward. Well, they finally figure out that I'm not a danger to myself because I get super sassy. As I start to sober up, I'm like, y'all so dumb. I was never going to kill myself. I just didn't want to be in a holding cell with all of those people. They're like, okay, smart thing. So I get released. There's a really high bail attached. I cannot figure out why. Turns out, when those police officers had to drag me out of the car, not only did I rack up a DUI that afternoon. I also racked up resisting arrest with violence and assault on a police officer. Yeah. <laughs> the police officer I assaulted was 250 pounds and six foot two. 
If you would like to know how I insulted him, I'm happy to tell you that when they had me on the hood of the car, I mentioned that like I was kicking and screaming like, you know, chicks tend to do, and nailed them in the balls. <laughs> it feels like sweet justice telling that story now, but it, well, you know, it's funny now, it wasn't funny then. So a couple weeks later when I'm in the office with the officer and my lawyer and all of those people, the officer who I kicked in the balls, bless his heart, uh, says, I really don't think we need to throw the book at her. First UI, she's a really good kid. She just had too much to drink. I wish she'd been right. I got really lucky. You know, they gave me like the bare minimum. And the truth is that I would go on to rack up two more DUIs in 2004 and 2006. The DUI in 2006, I almost killed somebody. I thought it was funny when I said I didn't see him. I had a really kind judge who, despite all of my shenanigans, offered me an opportunity to go to treatment. And when I got there, I was like, I'm going to hang out and do my bid, and I'm going to go back to my really illustrious life of like drinking wine and watching Desperate Housewives. And they would bring meetings in, and I'd be like, that is a cult. I want nothing to do with any of that. And when I got out of treatment, sure as shit, I was sober for like 110 days. And then, as luck would have it, I wasn't done. I was staying with my dad at the time. Uh, we were rocking it in like one of those old aged communities or whatever, which my dad wasn't even old enough to be in. So that's a whole nother story. And I found this bottle of Chevis Regal. I'm a kettle drinker, so I don't even know. But you know how like drug addicts and alcohol to be like, we'll take whatever. <laughs> And I get wasted. Duh. And when I woke up the next day, no recollection of what happened the night before. I just remember feeling sick. And I didn't do anything about it that day. I didn't do anything about it the next day. But I walked into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous the following day. And at the end of that meeting, I raised my hand and I said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was 24 years old. I wanted to die. And alcohol wasn't killing me fast enough. I am that good kid that that sheriff saw today. That was April 21st of 2007. I don't regret a single moment of that. I get to be a spiritual thug spreading love and light instead of kicking people in the balls. And when that officer gave me that speeding ticket, all $206 of it, 
I said, thank you, officer. You have a spectacular day. He looked at me like I had lost my damn mind, but that's how I get to live today. Thank you so much. that I had with my father. I've never told anybody this. Um, my wife, maybe. I didn't really know what I was going to say when I came up here. I put my dad on such a high pedestal that I'll never reach it. My father was an award-winning director of plays. He built the, the theater for the Dreyfus School of the Arts down the street. When he passed away two and a half years ago, they put a plaque on the center seat that said, Dennis Sims, you'll always have a seat saved and they never sell a ticket for that seat. I go there now. He's after my father's death. I wanted to join him. My best friend had died from this disease a few months before and, and then watching my father pass away, I was in martyr mode. And the only way I knew how to cope was looking for answers at the bottom of a bottle. And so, you know, we had my father's funeral at the Dreyfus School of the Arts on the, on the stage where he created art and inspired people. So I thought it would be fitting to take my life in a romantic, artistic, coke-influenced, alcohol-influenced death across the street from the Dreyfus School of the Arts. So I, I was sitting there at the train station, waiting for my train to come. Which, looking back, is maybe the dumbest place to commit suicide, because the train goes really slow when it stops. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been better off going down the track. So that same street, Fern and Tamron, I call Angel Avenue now, was the same street that my best friend lived on that died from this disease. So I figured, man, this is so fitting, man. This is how an actor should die. Best friend died there. Dad buried there. I'll die here. But the train never came. 
And I remember I was looking up at the sky and I called my mom and I said, I said, I don't want to live anymore, mom. I need help. And I said, Daddy, can you see me? Help me, Dad. You saved me all those other times, man. Why aren't you here to save me again? And I was pissed off at him. And I was pissed off at God. And I ran and ran and ran from God. And no matter how much I hauled ass when I turned around, he was right on me. So I called my mom and I said, I need help. Pick me up from that train station. And I went to a halfway house that night. And I remember I said, uh, I don't want to do that AA shit, but bring me a Bible. But I don't want to get too religious-y. I just want some wisdom. So I know that if you open the middle of the Bible, you're probably going to land on Psalms. That's the middle of the Bible. And I know that Proverbs comes right before that. So I said, let me go to Proverbs because Proverbs was written by King Solomon because he knew he was dying and he needed to teach his son how to be a good man. So it's just wisdom. It's not AA. It's not God. Just make me better. So I opened up to what I thought would be Psalms, the middle of the Bible. And Proverbs opened up. And the first verse I read said, do not stare at wine when it when it sparkles in its cup. For it strikes like a snake and poisons like a viper. You will be like one up on the high rigging. You will wake up and say, who hit me? But I'm not hurt. When can I have another drink? Daddy, can you see me? Yeah? So then from there, I went to a three-quarter house. And then from there, I started working in treatment. And I thought my art was dead. I thought I would never, you know, I was, I was a, my father's an award-winning director. He's the first, uh, he was the first artist to bring, uh, to bring the topic of AIDS to South Florida through theater. He was the first artist to bring the Holocaust through theater in South Florida. He was Disney's Teacher of the Year. Men's Magazine's Man of Achievement. Who's who among America's teachers? How am I ever going to live up to that? So when I finally got the demons out of me, which is why I think they call it wine and spirits, because I know for me, I woke up in blackouts in Miami driving from here. I woke up in Georgia a couple times driving from here. I had to stop and get gas. Who was driving? I looked different, talked different, walked different, did things I would never do. And I was intaking something, intaking those spirits. And I had a lot of, I guess you could say, demonic episodes through the years. And my father would come. And he would bless my house. He would bless me. He would bless all the things in my house with oils and an old Bible. So my father was this actor's actor, this man's man, this godly man. 
So I made a movie about how I felt without my dad here and about a mix of, of that and, and my best friend dying. So I made this movie. After I told myself that I was not going to do art anymore. So I made this movie and, and, and it was about the opioid epidemic and it, it brought me back to my art. Because see, three years ago when I was 90 days clean, I stumbled into this film festival called the Art of Recovery Film Festival. And I didn't think that there was art in recovery. I didn't know. And then that day I knew. And I sat and I watched all these films and I said, wait a minute. I'm, I'm really good at this. And I'm learning about this recovery stuff, so maybe I should try to mix these two things. And it gave me something that I feel like my dad's proud of me now. You know, I remember my dad um, said one time, I'm waiting for the prodigal son to return. And I, and I live with the regret every day that I didn't give it to him when he was here. But that regret is the biggest fuel. Nobody outworks me. Nobody will, because I made that promise. Dad, from this day forward, no one will outwork me. From this day forward, I'm going to work on people knowing Dennis Sims is Justin Sims' father and not Justin Sims is Dennis Sims' son. I'm a living memorial now, Dad. You see me? I know he sees me now because these are the times when I get to play with my dad again. He is my private audience. Whenever I'm about to go on stage, are about to go on film. I do what he told me to do when I was a kid. Close your eyes, Justin. Draw that circle around yourself. Breathe in, breathe out. Times three. And believe. If you believe, they'll believe. If you see it, they'll see it. And I felt like I became two actors in one. So now when I walk on a stage or I walk on a set, I got ghosts with me, angels, some might call them. So I'm like a two-in-one actor. And, and this recovery thing has led me to, I mean, the last conversation I had with my dad, right, that's what we are talking about. I outacted him. They moved him to hospice. Uh, they told us we had a week. He died the next morning. And the last conversation I had with my dad, I, I outacted him. He was in the bed and he kept trying to get out of the bed. Because then it moved to his brain, so he wasn't really there anymore. And I kept talking to invisible people in the room. And he believed me because I believed. He saw them because I saw them. It's okay. No, no, dad, dad, the nurse is telling me right now. It's okay. Stay in bed. I know he sees me. The last story we're featuring in today's episode was recorded at our Altered States theme live show. And a funny story about that is that 
when I put together that show with the theme Altered States, I really wanted uh, to get stories about uh, basically all kinds of drug trips, you know, fun drug trips or scary ones and whatever. But what happened was that um, there was a great, there's a great community of people in recovery who found out about the show and they hijacked my show. Um, it ended up being half stories of drug trips and half stories of recovery. And even in the audience, there was a lot of people that were in recovery and it made for a really, really cool show because it was like bouncing back and forth between recovery and drug stories and then all the secrets that I were sharing that I was sharing from the two raw to share were also about drug trips. You know, I love how things work out with raw storytelling. I never know what's gonna happen and what happens is always the best. So here goes. Our next storyteller is Manny Mendes. So um, he's an artist, a filmmaker, an author, and you can find him at Manny for Real, and that's real, R-E-E-L. And uh, this is his awesome, awesome painting. And it's a title of his story and his painting. It's Jack of Hearts. So Manny, come up here. And I'll let it's over. I'll never be sober. I couldn't believe. But now I'm so high. Everybody, an honor to be here and a pleasure as well. Um, my name is Manny. Um, I'm also a person in long-term recovery, which means I'm a grateful recovering addict. Thank you, my brother. Appreciate you. Um, uh, with that being said, Jack of Hearts. I really don't have no script. I really don't even know what I'm about to say. I just know that I know my art. When I speak about the Jack, I'm really speaking about myself. You see, anybody ever here felt like an underdog? I have. Anybody here an overcomer? I have. Two sides to the jack, as you can see in my art. One is royalty and one is darkness. For a long time, I felt like I've never fit in. I could never find my place. The jack being the lowest face in the deck of the cards. Queen, king, and ace. The ace is the hype. Everybody loves the ace. If you ever play cards and you get an ace, your heart beats. You get excited. But not everybody can play the ace. The jack is the lowest. Yes, he's a royalty. He's also an infantry warrior. He's fought in the trenches, unlike his ancestors, his kings and his queens. Always on, overlooked. It's the story of my life. Like I mentioned earlier, I've always been feeling out of place, never really understanding why life gave me the hand that it gave me. You could have the ace. A lot of us will get him. Don't mean you're going to win. Let me take you to another side. The side about the overcomer, the side about the real Jack, the Jack that's me today. I didn't go to college. I got my GED while I was in prison. Most youths, they strive for a GPA of 3.0. This Jack instead got 11 and a half years DOC. It was there where I found this gift. 
It was called art. It settled my mind. It taught me about myself. It taught me how to be still. I realized that it wasn't about what society judged me as. A jack was okay. I knew that I would have a journey that wouldn't be like most common people. You see, I was also in the streets. I was also an addict by the age of 13. I was also in my first institution rehab center at that age. You see, I was also raised more by juvenile programs than I was by my own family. See, by 17, I thought that maybe I had things under control. And by 18, I was given 18 and a half years sentenced here in Broward and in Palm Beach County. So this is the story of Jack. Now we're going to continue and I'm going to take you to the other side because the Jack never folded. The real Jack. January 16, 2012, the Jack found its worth. An amazing story is about to come. I also learned that the Jack was the son of a king. Do you hear me? Son of a king. Who was that king? Some called the higher power. I called the G-O-D. Some said it was good orderly direction. I called it God. The Jack all of a sudden started to understand himself. He knew that the art that he learned in the dark moments were actually his blessings. And it was through that art that he would find his salvation. When he asked God to teach him patience, God said, son, let me give you a canvas. It was in that canvas that he learned his first form of self-expression. You see, I could never talk like I'm talking right now. I was the quiet type sitting in the back of those same meetings, 12-step fellowships, where I met some awesome brothers, other jacks just like me, who lifted me up, built me up, and carried me, learned to love me until I learned how to love myself. Today, I stand here to bear witness I'm not just an artist or a painting of a jack. You see, the hype is over. I don't want to be an ace. I'm okay with being me. I love me today. I've gone on to do some great things with my life. I've overcame a lot of odds. You could actually say that the deck of cards that life gave me, I played them well. But it was only after I got clean and sober. Before that, it was a wrap. Today, I don't fold because I know my worth. As it was told before, I'm not only an artist. I've produced six documentaries. I've traveled the country. I've spoken to many different platforms. But Raw Story is my number one and the first time that I'm here today. I've also gone to live on my dreams of being a great father and a great son. I published my book, a book that's raw, a book about my story, a book about all the jacks to inspire y'all not to believe the hype. My name is Manny. Thank y'all.
If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Every little bit helps. And if you have any questions or comments about our podcast or show in general, you can email me at enid at rawstorytelling.org. You can sign up for our newsletter at rawstorytelling.org or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at rawstorytelling for the latest news because honestly, things change every day around here. <laughs> Thank you to DJ Sandoz for the audio recording of this show. Fabian Lozada is our podcast editor and Cafe Collective was our host venue. Raw Storytelling is a production of branding and design studio Raw Made. Learn more at rawmade.co. The music you heard in this episode is by Sleeping Policemen, Dave Depper, and, and other varied artists featured on our live show recordings. Until next time, keep it raw. Raw.